This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello. This is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by FEI, a part of Thermo Fisher. This webinar is organized by Thermo Fisher Scientific. They lead the life sciences industry in single particle analysis workflow solutions, offering a comprehensive range of hardware and software. The solution provided guarantees exceptional throughput and superb data quality, leading to greater scientific insight and quicker understanding of the scientific question. Today's presentation is titled, Harnessing the Power of Heterogeneity in Cryo-Electron Microscopy, and is being presented by Dr. Richard Haidt from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Richard Haidt is an assistant member in the Structural Biology Program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where his lab characterizes the molecular mechanisms that control ion channel function. Richard received his PhD in 2010 in the laboratory of Dr. Thomas Waltz at Harvard Medical School where he used electron crystallography of aquaporin zero two-dimensional crystals to analyze the structural basis of annular lipid protein interactions at high resolution. Richard performed his postdoctoral studies in the laboratory of Dr. Roderick McKinnon at Rockefeller University, where he used single particle cryo-electron microscopy, X-ray crystallography, and electrophysiological approaches to study ligand and voltage-gated potassium channels. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Richard at the end. And the recording of this webinar will be available at bit.ly slash cryoemwebinar, all one word, lowercase. So now, over to you, Richard, for the presentation. Thank you, Amanda. And I'd like to thank FEI and Bite Size Bio for inviting me to speak this morning or this afternoon or evening, wherever everyone may be. Um, I'm really excited to talk about some of the work that we've been doing using cryo-electron microscopy to characterize the structure and function of an interesting family of potassium channels known as uh, slow 22 And so uh, the basic question that ion channel biologists in general want to answer is, what are the mechanisms that regulate the equilibrium between open and closed? For many years, we've understood that ion channels have two main conformational states, one that's closed in which ions cannot cross the membrane, and one that's open that allows ions to cross the membrane flowing down their electrochemical gradient. And a lot of these, actually almost all of these uh, experiments have been done using single-channel electrophysiological recordings where you can characterize the ion flux across the membrane, either a synthetic membrane or across a small piece of a cellular membrane. And by doing so, you can start to characterize what are the activation ligands, what are the inactivation ligands, and a lot of information about kinetics. But these have the, the, the one drawback is that you don't get any structural information. You can see how channels open and close, but you don't see the mechanisms for how that actually occurs. And so for the example of slow 22 which I've studied, as you can see here, in the absence of sodium, uh, all of the channels stay at this top level, which I've called CC, which are two closed channels. As we go to a slightly higher sodium concentration, in this case, 40 millimolar sodium, now we have most of the time the channels are staying both in the closed state, but under some frequency, they'll drop down into an open state. And so that's why I have it called CO. 
So we have one channel that's closed and one channel that's open because they can open and close independently. And then at a higher sodium concentration, in this case, 80 millimolar, now we can see that they can open and close independently. And so we have instances where we have two channels closed, one channel open and one channel closed, and then two channels open. And by characterizing these sort of uh, relationships between ion concentration and channel activity over a broader range, you can develop a dose response curve such as the one shown here, where you can see at the low sodium concentration, the channels are fully closed. It's very similar to what we saw in the single channel recordings. But as you start to go to higher and higher sodium concentrations, now more and more of the channels are in the open state at any one time. And this is what we denote as open probability. So what are the fraction of channels that are adopting an open uh, conductive conformation at a particular time versus um, those that are not in that state from the total population. And so you can see this is clearly a, a sodium-dependent process. In the absence of sodium, all of the channels are in the closed state. And then as you reach um, maximal open probability of around 0.6 or 0.7 at high sodium concentrations. What's an interesting feature of this, however, is that even in uh, maximal sodium concentrations, not 100% of the channels are open. And so even at um, high sodium concentrations, there's an equilibrium between open and closed. And for structural studies, this makes things very difficult because you have an equilibrium between both open and closed. And generally, when you're trying to determine a structure, particularly using crystallographic methods, you need every uh, molecule in your crystal to adopt the same con conformation. Otherwise, you're going to have disorder and that will inhibit crystal crystallization. And so when we started the project trying to determine the structure of slow 2,2, we first started in the absence of sodium at this zero millimolar sodium, which based on our electrophysiological recordings, as you can see here, were totally closed. And so we started out purifying the protein. Um, we purified it in a mixture of dodecylmaltoside and lipids. And based on this gel filtration pro profile, you can see that there is a small void peak and then a single monodisperse um, tetramer peak. And so we thought that this was a well-behaved sample. And as a way to further characterize the behavior of the sample biochemically, we used negative stain single particle analysis, where we um, took a small amount of the protein, we applied it to uh, continuous carbon grids, added a small amount of uranyl acetate stain, washed away the majority of the stain, and then looked at this in a transmission electron microscope. And this is one of the representative images that we could see. And you can see that the grid is completely full of these small almost cubic shaped protein particles. And this is what the, the slow 2-2 channel looked like in negative stain. We could see very few aggregates and most of the channels seemed to be pretty well behaved. So we thought we had a very good sample for structure determination. At this time, this was around 2010, 2011, prior to the, the recent revolution in cryo-electron microscopy. And so we were trying to grow uh, three-dimensional crystals of the protein. And over several years, we, we in a lot of effort into this, but we were unable to grow any crystals. And so um, what we wanted to do then was to try an alternative approach. And so at that time, the only other approach that was viable for determining membrane protein structures, and although it was a very niche approach, had worked, and this was what I used as a graduate student in Tom Walsh's lab, was that of electron crystallography, where you reconstitute lipids and proteins, and under certain conditions, you can actually get them to form a lattice. And this is an example of one of those latticed arrays. So um, in the, the image on the left, you can see that there's an image of the um, 
2D crystals and then a diffraction pattern from one of the small images, calculate a Fourier transform from these crystals, and you can see that there's these reciprocal lattice spots. And from these spots, what you can do is recalculate by doing reverse Fourier transform, and you can calculate a, a projection map of what the crystal looks like. And so we could clearly see the boundaries of the individual tetramers. However, these crystals only diffracted to about 12 angstroms, so we're unable to get a high-resolution structure. Fortunately, around this time, this was the same time that Yifan Cheng's group, in collaboration with David Julius at UCSF, determined the first structure of the TRIP-V1 ion channel by single particle electron microscopy. So we thought that this might be a viable approach for our slow 2-2 channels. And so we wanted to continue our, um, our structure determination methods, but rather than using um, crystallography, we were going to try single particle. And so our basic workflow was to first use negative stain to demonstrate that we had a well-behaved biochemically uh, stable conformation of channels, which it looked like we did. We then used uh, an FEIF20 microscope, which is an older model, but is still very good um, and can be equipped with a cryo stage for screening samples. And so this allowed us to quickly look and see that we had channels in ice and they were pretty well behaved, they were monodispersed. We then were able to uh, travel to Genelia Farms to use the instrument, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute instrument to collect an initial data set shown here. So you can see these were pretty nice images and from this we could then move on and try to determine a high resolution structure. And so this is an example now a little bit larger of one of those images, and you can see there's a mixture of channels and different views. We then took these images, picked out the individual particles, used 2D classification to see what sort of representative views we could get. These are some of the views, and so you can see that the majority of the views are side views, but there's a few top views and somewhat tilted views. So we thought we'd been able to sample most of Fourier space, and from this we could determine uh, a good structure. We used uh, Reliance's approach to determine the structure, and from this, we're able to get a nice overall map. Um, the channel has two main domains. There's a transmembrane domain, which I've shown on top. I'll always have the extracellular solution at the very top of the screen, and then the intracellular solution or cytoplasm at the bottom with the membrane in the middle. And so the transmembrane domain is the part that actually spans the membrane. And then there's a large gating ring structure, which extends into the intracellular cytoplasmic space. When we compared the density of the map, we found that there were some interesting features in that the, the gating ring was pretty well ordered and we could see some side chain density. But when we looked at the transmembrane domain, the resolution was much poor. We had a hard time discerning the features. And particularly as we looked at the outside, the S1 to S4 domain, the peripheral domains, the density was much, much poorer. And we didn't quite understand why this was. We had calculated the structure in the absence of sodium where everything should ostensibly be in a closed conformation. And so, so the first approach that we took to try to characterize the, the nature of this disorder was to use local resolution estimation, which rather than calculating a, a resolution number for the entire map, calculates it in small local segments. And so we colored this um, based on the, the local resolution. And so between three and five angstroms, local resolution is in blue. Between five and seven angstroms are in red. And you can see, similar to the, the overall map, the gating ring is better ordered. Most of it's in this three to five angstrom resolution regime. 
and it was a pretty stable structure. But when we looked at the transmembrane domain, it was a little bit different. And so the periphery of the transmembrane domain, the detergent micelle, was disordered as we expected it would be. In the very core, um, the pore domain was mostly blue with a little bit of white, and so that was pretty well ordered. But the S1 to S4 domain, the, the peripheral proteinaceous part of it, was very disordered, and so that was more in the five to seven angstrom resolution range, and we weren't quite sure why. And so to try to characterize the nature of this um, heterogeneity, we used uh, 3D classification. And because each of these images that correspond to contribute to these structures are individual channels, we don't necessarily have to have them all be in the same conformation. You can sort them out computationally later using Reliant or Freeline or several of the other uh, packages to sort out different conformations. And so we started out with one major conformational state all at this 100%. And then we allowed the particles to sort themselves out into five different subclasses. And as you can see here, there's two major classes shown at the edges in blue and red, and then three minor classes, all of which overall have a similar feature in that they have multiple transmembrane helices and a large intracellular gating ring. And so we focused on the two most abundant, thinking that that would have the highest signal to noise. And to try to compare them, what we did was we aligned the gating ring, which was the most well-ordered in our overall structure, and superimposed the, the two maps on top of one another. And what we saw was that the um, gating rings were almost identical. There was no differences at the resolution of the map, which was about six angstroms for these uh, subpopulations at, within the gating ring domain. But we could see significant conformational differences within the transmembrane domain. So if you look at the section between the two dotted lines, this represents the um, a section through the transmembrane domain. So if you look at that and then rotate it 90 degrees so you're looking directly at it, what you can see is that if you um, keep everything fixed in the gating ring, there's actually about a seven degree rotation between the two different conformations in the transmembrane domain. And so both of these appear to be closed conformations, though there's no sodium present. But even though there's, they're both closed, there is still quite a bit of conformational heterogeneity. And in this case, it's about seven degrees of rotation that the transmembrane can have with respect to the gating ring. And so as I mentioned a moment ago, because each of these are individual channels, we can actually deal with different portions of the channel differently. And so this is an approach that was first pioneered by Shor Sheraz's group to work with ribosome in collaboration with Banki Ramakrishnan's group, where they broke up, in that case, ribosomes into smaller pieces, small subunit and large subunit, where they knew that there was conformational heterogeneity between the two pieces. And so we wanted to apply the same sort of approach to our smaller reconstruction. And so what we first did was we took an overall reconstruction at about 4.5 angstroms and then generated a soft mask that enclosed just the transmembrane domain and said, let's ignore everything outside of this because it's actually negatively contributing to the alignment of this part of the channel and do a reconstruction from that. And in this case, now we're able to get continuous density for the transmembrane domain, allowing us to build uh, an atomic model for the pore domain and then dock polyalanine alpha helices into the S1 to S4 domain because the density had become better as we've done a better job of aligning this region of the protein. Similarly, we applied a mask to the gating ring, although this was already the better ordered portion of the channel, by removing the density corresponding to the transmembrane domain, which in this case was disordered because every single one of these had somewhere between zero and a seven degree rotation, we're able to improve the alignments of the particles within the gating ring and improve the resolution to about uh, 4.2 angstroms.
what we could do then was take a, a pseudo atomic or a, an atomic model of the gating ring and then our pseudo atomic model of the transmembrane domain dock those back into the whole channel reconstruction and generate a, a model for what the channel actually looks like and that's what I've shown here. And so I've colored each of the domains differently. So the S1 to S4 domain is shown in green. And this is what we'd color just in, um, as or built just as polyalanine alpha helices due to the overall disorder of this region. The pore domain, I was able to build a model of, and that's shown in yellow. And then the intracellular domain, the, the gating ring is composed of two RCK domains colored in red and blue. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Now that we had a, a full channel reconstruction of what the channel looked like, we could start to make an analysis of whether this was actually a closed conformation, as would be expected for a structure done of this channel in the absence of sodium. And so by characterizing the width of the ion conduction pathway, all along the pathway, what you can see is at the very top, right near the extracellular surface, there's a very tight constriction, and this is the selectivity filter that is absolutely conserved amongst all potassium channels. Just below this, it expands a little bit and then constricts back down, and there's a methionine residue from each of the four inner helices that points in and narrows the ion conduction pathway too small to allow a hydrated potassium ion to cross. And so we do believe that this is a closed uh, channel confirmation. The next thing that we wanted to do was to try to determine an open channel confirmation. So previously, we'd focused our efforts at the, in the absence of sodium. So now we wanted to start to add a little bit more sodium. But knowing that this is already going to be heterogeneous, we didn't know exactly what sodium concentration would be best. So we took a, a spread of different sodium concentrations. We did 20 millimolar, 40 millimolar, 80 millimolar and 160 millimolar. And so this corresponds to a low open probability, but might potentially provide us with the information we would need to determine the structure of the channel in an open confirmation. And so uh, at this point, a little bit of time had come on, gone on, and I was working in the lab of Rod McKinnon at Rockefeller University. So we now had access to not just a negative stain instrument at Rockefeller, but we had an FEI Arctica, which is a 200 kilovolt microscope, and an FEI Titan Cryos, which is a 300 kilovolt electron microscope. And the major advantage of the these two instruments is that we could do all of our screening in the Arctica and then immediately take the exact same grids and put it into the Cryos. And this is really advantageous, being as we had to do four different samples, we wanted to make sure that the time that we had in the Creos was maximized for data collection. We didn't spend any of it in screening. And so this was our modified workflow, was starting with negative stain, screen for optimal ice conditions in the Arctica, and then take the grid that we identified to be the very best, put it in the Creos, and collect the data set. And so our, our approach then for data collection was we collected between 1,200 and about 1800 images at each of these different ion concentrations, 20 millimolar, 40 millimolar, 80 millimolar, 160 millimolar sodium. We then automatically picked all of the particles from these, uh, somewhere between 60,000 and 150,000 particles per data set. And then due to not knowing at which concentration we would have the best chance of identifying an open confirmation, we took all of these particles and put them into one large data set. So in this case, about 460,000 particles generated a consensus model from these particles. So not doing any classification, just saying, if you put all the particles together, what does the reconstruction look like? And that's what this is shown in green. 
And then we applied 3D classification, knowing that we probably had at least several different confirmations, potentially an open confirmation as well. And so we specified 10 classes and allowed these to be sorted out. And so highlighting this class now a little bit bigger, these classes a little bit bigger, what you can see is that nine of the classes are quite similar and they have a, a significant distance between the transmembrane domain and the cytoplasmic gating ring. And I've colored all these in red. And then there's one class, class three in blue, which is actually a little bit different. And so now the distance between the two domains has been shrunk. And to get a little bit more uh, of an idea of what each of these classes actually look like, we did the same sort of analysis that we'd done previously, where we looked at a side view, and then we took a small section through the transmembrane domain. And so you can see here in class eight, the inner helices are still quite closed. But what was interesting is now that we had many more particles and we could sample more finely, is that we went through the classes, we could actually start to see each of these little ratchets of the rotation. And so between the two endpoints, there was about a seven degree or eight degree rotation. But now rather than just seeing the two most extremes, we could start to see individual rotational states along the way. And what was still remarkable was that if we aligned the transmembrane domain or aligned the gating ring of each of these parts independently, they looked almost identical. So it was really just a rigid body rotation of each of the two domains with respect to one another. And I'll come back to it in a bit once we uh, get a, a little bit more information about why we could see this rigid body rotation and where the degrees of freedom actually existed. And so the last one that I want to show is after we compared all of these red states, now we compared this one blue state, which was the outlier class. And what you can see as I toggle back and forth between the red and the blue state is that the inner helices, the, the very the helices closest to the central axis, where previously the methionine of uh, each of the subunits had generated a gate, had been pulled apart. And so this generated what we hypothesized might be an open conformation. And so if you superimpose one of the red states and one and then the blue state, you can see that there clearly is a, a difference in the conformation of the inner helices. And so we do think that this does correspond to an open conformation. However, because this was only about 7% of the particles, this was insufficient to determine a high-resolution reconstruction. This class alone was only about 4.5 angstroms, so it was not good enough to make a nice comparison. So instead, we went to the next step up. And so instead of doing um, 120 to 160 molar sodium, we then went to 300 millimolar sodium, where we thought we might shift it from the majority of the particles being in the closed state to the majority of the particles being in the open state and followed the same sort of path. And so now if you compare our previous data sets, we'd, com we'd combined four different data sets together to make one. Now we just kept the 300 millimolar data set separate because this is collected on a different microscope at a slightly different magnification, which made it more difficult to merge the data together. So it was easier just to keep it separate. And so we had about 160,000 particles. We generated a consensus model from these and then repeated the classification procedure. And now as you zoom in, the, there's actually a difference. So here, eight of the classes have colored blue, and the major criteria being that the distance between the transmembrane domain and the intracellular gating ring is shrink is small, whereas the two outlier classes shown in red have a larger distance between these two classes. And unlike the um, sodium-free state or most of the closed states, which I'd previously shown in red, there was no conformational mismatch between the different blue classes. All of them, when you superimposed, looked almost identical. So we could merge them all together to make one nice 
high resolution uh, structure of the closed conformation. And that's what I'm showing here. And I've, I've called it open based on our analysis of the inner helices and then comparing it now to the previously determined closed conformation. And so overall, one of the biggest things that we could easily see was that there was a shrinking of the, uh, the length of the channel. So the open class is about five angstroms shorter than the closed class. And this corresponds to the shrinking of the distance between the transmembrane domain and the intracellular gating ring upon activation of the channel. Um, because this was higher resolution, it was a little easier to build. We didn't need to use masking, so we could just immediately dock the closed structure into the channel, rebuild the parts that had moved, and generate a new uh, structure. And so now I'm comparing the ion conduction pathway of the two structures. And so previously I'd showed that the closed has this narrow constriction right at the interface between the transmembrane domain and the gating ring caused by the methionine side chains, whereas in the open conformation, due to the overall change of the gating ring and then the change of the inner helices, it's now been expanded to about 20 or 25 angstroms across. And so now we have a very large, wide open funnel directly from the intracellular side all the way to the selectivity filter. And this is potentially one of the reasons why slow channels, which are known as a very high conductance family of potassium channels, has such a high conductance is it's just a huge funnel sucking up potassium ions whereas many of the other potassium channels structures have determined have rather narrow pathways leading to the selectivity filter, and so probably have to follow single file. Um, here's now a, a morph showing conformational changes between the open and closed state. So we'll start with the closed state, and I'll rotate it around. You can see the S1 to S4 domains in green, the poor domain in yellow, and the RCK1 domain in blue, and you can see a small movement of the RCK1 domain outward, and this corresponds with an expansion of the inner helices. Continue to move around, you can see how the inner helices now move in concert with the movement of RCK1 domain. And as I mentioned before, the reason we had this disorder is you can see a discontinuity in the, in the linker between the S1 to S4 domain, and or the poor domain, and the RCK1 domain, and this is due to that rotational mismatch. This linker has some slack in it in the closed conformation, but in the open conformation, it becomes taut, and that's what actually generates the force to pull the inner helices apart. And so that's why we no longer have uh, multiple conformations in the open class because there's no slack in the system. Whereas in the closed class, the linker between the RCK1 domain and the inner helices has a, a little bit of room to wiggle. Um, the next thing we wanted to do was actually go back and map the individual conformational states on the raw particle images. And so since we keep track of where every particle is classified during the, the classification procedure, we can identify which classes were which particles were classified as open and which particles were classified as closed. And keeping the color scheme consistent, what I've done here is drawn a red circle around every particle in the 20 millimolar data set that we said was closed and put a blue circle around the one that was open. And so, as you would expect, in the very low concentrations of sodium, the vast majority of the particles are closed. So we go to slightly higher concentrations. Now we can actually see that there's two particles that are open. At 80 millimolar, now we're starting to get a reasonable population. At 160 millimolar, now it's almost a quarter. And then at 300 millimolar, it's the majority, consistent with the idea that as you add sodium, you get more and more particles that belong to this open class. However, this is just one image out of this large data set. And so to quantify it, we, the uh, 
same sort of analysis, but did it for the entire data set rather than on individual images. And so that's what's plotted here. And so these are the fraction of particles that are classified as either open or closed in each one of the um, ion concentrations. And so at 20 millimolar, 40 millimolar, it's around 2 to 3% of the particles. 80 millimolar, it jumps up to about 5%. And 160 millimolar, now we're at about 20% of the particles have been classified as open. However, we weren't sure how reproducible this was. So the, the way to try to characterize this was we went back to the very beginning of the data set where we'd picked all the particles, generated new consensus models, and then ran through the classification again. And we did this five times to try to see how similar the reconstructions were and how similar the um, fraction of particles classified as each state were. And what we found was actually pretty remarkable and that each time almost the exact same number of particles were classified as open at each ion concentration. And to characterize this a little bit further, we wanted to look at the individual particle level. So what we did was we counted how many times is each is a particle is classified as open, classified as open in the other four data sets. And so that's what this plot is showing. And so n of 1 on the x-axis means that this particle is only classified as open in one of the five data sets. n of 2 means in 2, 3, 3, 4, 4. And you can see that the majority of the particles are classified as open in all five of the data sets, indicating that the, the algorithm is very precise and it does a very reproducible job of saying if a particle is open, it's going to be classified as open every time, giving us a, a little bit of strength behind our argument that we can actually classify these particles and that there is a distribution of particles that are open and a distribution of particles that are closed within each data set. And so now if we plot this as a function of sodium concentration and compare it to our earlier plot of the concentration of particles that are in the open in it, the open or closed state based on electrophysiological recordings, what you can clearly see is that there's a very similar shape to the activation. And so by cryo-EM, uh, we start out at low concentrations, having very few open particles. And as you go to higher and higher concentrations, now more and more of the particles adopt the open conformation. And they both have half activations of around 200 millimolar sodium, indicating that they're activated by similar concentrations of sodium. However, there is one major difference between these, and this is that uh, by cryo-EM, it seemed that we we're able to get almost all of the particles to adopt the open state, whereas by electrophysiology, as I mentioned earlier, only about 70% of the particles ever plateau into this open conductive state, and there's always some fraction of particles that are not active at any one time. And so we think that there might be a subpopulation of particles, which we have yet to classify out, that look open but are actually not conductive. And this may be a minor conformational change in the selectivity filter somewhere else in the channel that we have yet to be able to detect. But it gives us uh, strong evidence that slow 2-2 is activated by sodium structurally in a very similar way. And these conformational changes that we see lead to the activation of the channel electrophysiologically and open pore conformation. The next thing and the last thing that we wanted to look at was, is there a sodium dependence of the closed classes? Remember I said that there was only one class in the 20 to uh, 160 millimolar data sets that was open, but there were nine that were, so, that were closed. And we weren't sure if the different concentrations of sodium would influence. And so was there a stepwise? Did it rotate a route, rotate, rotate? And then once it reached a particular um, critical step, then it jumped into the open state. 
And so what we did was we took the two endpoints, those that had either the most clockwise and the most counterclockwise rotation with respect to the transmembrane domain and the gating ring, as I showed earlier, and characterized how many particles were in each concentration of sodium in each of the five data sets. And so this is class two and class eight, which are the most clockwise and most counterclockwise. And so similar to what I showed before, there's about a seven degree rotation along the fourfold axis. But when we characterize the fraction of particles within each data set, they were classed as most open or most clockwise or most counterclockwise. What we found is that there was no clear dependence. Uh, it's about 10% of the particles in each state, which is about one-tenth of the total data set. With 10 classes, it seems to be almost uh, just a, a somewhat random distribution. And when we went back later and looked at the other data, the other opposite endpoint, again, it was about 10%. And when we looked carefully between reconstructions in each of the data sets, it appears that there's a small number that are plus seven, plus seven degrees or at zero, and then a large number that are in between. And so it seems to be a continuum of conformational changes that are not dependent upon sodium and that it can just rotate around due to those flexible linkers. And sodium concentration doesn't influence where, with respect to the gating ring, the transmembrane domain is. And so now we can start to go back to our initial idea and put some structures into our basic framework of we have a closed conformation where ions can't cross and an open conformation where ions can cross. And we know that they're in equilibrium, but now we can actually put structures on this. And so the basic model is that we have a closed state, you add sodium, now we can get an open state. But based on our, our analysis of the closed conformations, there's actually an equilibrium of many different states. There's an ensemble of closed states. And then once they achieve a certain critical concentration of sodium, they switch into this open state. And the thing that we're still not clear about and we don't have a good grasp on yet and we're still investigating is what is the equilibrium between this open conductive state that we can see and this open non-conductive state that we have yet to be able to, to determine, either because it's so similar that we haven't seen it or some other reason technically that we might have missed it during our analysis. And so this is now our model for how slow 2-2 gates is that there's an equilibrium of multiple closed conformations. And then based on our analysis of the Hill coefficient, it appears that either three or four sodiums, so one for each subunit, need to bind to the channel. Upon that, in a concerted motion, everything switches to an open conformation. And it, as you may have noticed, we never saw anything intermediate. Everything was either closed or open. And so this is a switch-like activation mechanism where everything goes from closed, binds sodium, binds sodium, binds sodium. And then once it reaches the critical sodium concentration locally, it'll pop into the open conformation. The equilibrium between the open conductive and the open non-conductive conformation is something that we haven't quite characterized yet. And so this is something that, that will be available for future studies. And with that, I'd like to thank everyone who helped me with the work. This was a lot of effort in a lot of institutions as we were learning EM, and it was a really enjoyable process. Mostly, I'd like to thank Rod, who was a great postdoctoral mentor and has really helped my career. I'd like to thank the rest of the lab, both past and present, for helping um, to get this project going and helping to learn EM as a, pro as a group. Uh, Tom Walsh, who helped us with the initial screening on the F20. Um, Pong Yuan, who was a, a former postdoc in Rod's lab and is a, a longtime collaborator who now has a, uh, his own research.
Research Group at Washington University, Mark Ebrahim at the Rockefeller University EMS facility, who helped us with the data collection, as did the, uh, the people at Janelia Farms, Zihong Yu, uh, Jason De La Cruz, and Xuan Hong. And I'd like to thank you for listening, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks, Richard. That was an excellent presentation. And we do have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears in the right of your screen. So the first question we have is from Aksa. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Um, so what they ask is, what should the ratio be between lipid and protein to get closer to ideal artificial membrane, to an ideal artificial membrane? So ideal artificial membranes are hard to build for structural studies. So with the, the 2D crystals that I worked on, we often had a very high protein to lipid ratio, and we could actually, in those cases, count the individual lipids to generate a membrane. And, and in most cases, it was about 12 to 15 lipids per subunit of the channel. When you're dealing with single particles, it's much harder because you need to somehow capture those and make them distinct from the rest of the solution. And so in a lipid nanodisc, you can often see density for the first ring of lipids, the annular ring of lipids, and then the outer rings of lipids between that first annular ring and the nanodisc are, are generally disordered and it's very difficult to tell. And so the way that we do this in our group is we do it experimentally and we look using gel filtration and negative stain electron microscopy to see what is the most biochemically well-stabilized well condition varying the concentration of lipids, the concentration of protein, and the concentration of the scaffold. If it's a detergent sample where we've doped in lipids similar to what I did with slow 2, then you use a similar approach. Is that you vary the concentration of lipid, you vary the concentration of detergent, and the concentration of protein, and look either by negative stain or by gel um, size exclusion to see what is the best behaved sample. So it's kind of empirically determined. Yes. That's cool. Um, and we have another question from Xiang Min, and they're asking, did you do 3D autorefine first before doing the 3D classification? And if so, for what reason? So the reason we did the 3D autorefine is we didn't know and we didn't want to bias our knowledge of what structure we would get from any data set. By forcing all the particles into one consensus model and generating different confirmations out of those, we knew they came directly from the data and they didn't come from any saying, we're going to start with a closed confirmation or we're going to start with an open confirmation. We're going to start directly with the data. And if we see different confirmations come out of that and it's reproducible, then we know that we haven't biased our analysis in any way. Okay. And then kind of related to this, or sorry, this is a separate question. So this is from Juan. How do you separate open and closed forms in just micrographs? So the micrographs themselves, the raw images, we can't tell, but every particle that is in the data set has a unique identifier. Mm -hmm. And so as we switch from two dimensions of the images to three-dimensional reconstructions where we've classified it, we know at the end which of those total uh, 500,000 particles, we know that 7.4% of them belong to the open state, but we can actually see that particle 312, 2,113, and so on and so forth. All okay. the particles that were classified as open, we know specifically which ones those are. So we can then go back and look, particle 212 was in micrograph 103, and which particle that actually was, because as part of it, we have the XY coordinates. So it's very easy to do a one-to-one -one correspondence between particles in the raw images and particles in the 3D classification. Okay. 
And we've got a couple of different questions about your the sodium concentration. So I'm gonna try to combine them. We've got three or four different questions. So I'm gonna try to combine it into one big question and see how much I mess it up. Um, so what people are asking is basically why did you or what was your rationale behind combining the various sodium concentration cryolium data sets into one large data set? So we did it both independently and separately. And okay. for the robustness of the statistics, it worked a lot. It was much more reproducible when we had a larger particle data set. As you may remember, only about mm -hmm. 60,000 particles came out of that lowest 20 millimolar data set. And so it was hard to do good 3D classification. We can only do about three or four classes before the noise level became too high to see. And so by merging all the particles to a large half million particle data set, it allowed us to sample much more finely. We actually tried between, I think, four classes and 20 classes. And in all cases, the numbers were plus or minus about 2% from from numbered from um, one to, or from classification and classification. So it seemed to be very reproducible. Just the, few, the fewer number of classes, the finer, the, the coarser the grain is, the harder it is to classify accurately. Okay. And then, you might have answered this a little bit before, but um, Joao asks about model bias in uh, cryo-EM. So that's also one of the reasons why we use the consensus models each time. We generated an initial model from either open or closed, went through the 3D auto-refine to generate a consensus model, and it didn't matter which model we started with. We could start with the open model, we could start with the closed. The consensus models were very similar, and then the subsequent 3D classification gave us almost identical populations of particles. So at least for this channel, there was very little um, model bias, and we generated our initial models directly from the data, either using Isaac and Viper, or by using EMAN2. Okay. And then Mohit asks, can you cryofreeze a protein in its transition state? If So with the ribosomes, people have done mm -hmm. fantastic work characterizing individual transition states. For our channel, it seemed that they're either very low abundance or too short-lived or too unstable to characterize. So we weren't able to characterize them here. Maybe if you had another order of magnitude of data, it would be possible to actually characterize an intermediate state but it's so low abundance, that's what gave us the idea that this is a, a, a very dynamic switch. And that correlates very well with electrophysiological recordings, where on the sub-millisecond timescale where we're doing our electrophysiological recordings, we either have open or closed channels. We never have a subconductance state on the way to an open state. Okay. And then, um, elect this also relates to the sodium, um, sodium concentrations. So um, Alexis asked, about you said that to get the channel in the open concentration um why did you decide to use 300 millimolar sodium chloride it seems to them that the probability was even higher at higher salt concentrations it was mostly just working along the titration at, okay. at that point we we knew that it would be some fraction and since we'd already seen that there was an equilibrium if we went to the maximal sodium concentration that might have helped us to characterize this additional open non-conductive mm -hmm. state but we were just at, we, we hadn't realized that that would occur so going back it might be helpful to collect at higher and higher sodium concentrations one of the issues with having extremely high ion concentrations in your buffer for cryo em is that you increase the background as you go to higher oh, okay. ion concentrations and so at one molar salt our freezing conditions might not work as well and that might interfere with our data collection 
Okay, so it sounds kind of like you've got to pick that balance, the trade-off between the um, stabilizing in different concentrations as well as the trade-off with the higher background. Yes. And then Joe asks, which you mentioned a couple earlier, but I figured I would ask you so that way he could get his answer more clearly. Um, what software programs did you use to do the reconstructions? So we... <laughs> We, we used a variety of programs. They're in the methods for the paper. So the first okay. thing we did was to use Unblur to take the individual movies, align them, and apply a dose weight. We then used uh, John Rubenstein's individual particle polishing program to correct for local movements of the particles. We then ex did auto-picking and, and clean up in Relyon. We did our 3D classification in Relyon, and then we generated the final maps using Freeline. Okay. And then along those lines, Pranav asks, um, has the identifier been built in the software or did you write specific scripts to do this? So it, the software has all the information, so it's very simple shell scripts to pull out okay. and count. So it wasn't, wasn't complicated. Okay, and then Dimitri asks, um, "How do you see the open and closed constant, or the open and closed conformation on just a single micrograph? Is it by size?" So, on the individual micrographs, the part there's too little signal to noise to be able to tell one particle from another, and so that's why we put all the particles together, use 3D classification, where there we could discriminate between open and closed state. If you look at one raw particle, it's very hard with the signal to noise to calculate that small five angstrom change in the in the thickness. And that's only if you have a direct side view. If you have any other com any other view of the particle, the size won't tell you which conformation you have. Okay, and then um, oh, I'm sorry, Grimi. I'm sorry if I, I know I mispronounced your name horribly. Um, how do you eva usually evaluate sample quality? Is it based on negative staining, or do you just visually look at it, or is it based on image processing? So this has evolved, some other over, this has evolved over time. So okay. the step that we usually use, as I mentioned, was is negative staining. We want to make sure that we don't have aggregates. We want to make sure that our particles uh, have unique features. Then. Um, now that we have access to a screening microscope, the Arctica, we will take these we'll take the grids, we'll freeze somewhere between eight and ten different conditions, and over the course of a day, screen through all of these grids and identify the ones that have the thinnest ice, the most reproducible tone rings, and for something like a fourfold symmetric channel, we want to make sure we don't just have one preferred view, but we have a variety of different views. And so we'll take maybe 40 or 50 images. We'll then use motion core to correct for drift, then use CTF fine to determine the tone rings. And by doing a combination of these sorts of analysis, we can pick the grid that we think is the best, and then we can put that directly into the Creos for data collection. Okay. And then Pramod asks, um, is there a desensitized state amongst the open and closed channels? And if yes, how does um, the confirmation differ? So that is one potential hypothesis for this okay. open non-conductive state that we weren't able to separate from the rest of the open state, it may be desensitized. In many channels where desensitization has been well characterized, there do, does appear to be a distinct confirmation. Desensitization or inactivation of slow 22 has not been well characterized, so we're not sure what the, the cause of that may be. Okay, and then um, Juan asks, 
or states that transmembrane proteins are difficult to make into cryo-EM, into a cryo-EM grid because of the lipids. So how did you deal with this problem in your slow 2-2? Um, lots of biochemistry. As, as I mentioned, we spent several years mm -hmm. trying to grow crystals of this, and because we couldn't get crystals, we kept trying to optimize the biochemistry over time. And so at the end point, when cryo-EM became an available approach, we had a very well-behaved sample, and so it was rather straightforward to take it and freeze it. Yeah, and just transfer over what you knew. Exactly. Okay, and then Doreen asks, were there any signs of asymmetry in any of the confirmations of the channel? So that was one of the other reasons why we merged all the particles together, because as you use symmetry, you get mm -hmm. four times as many views, but as you remove symmetry, then you can't. So we did do multiple asymmetric classifications of the data set and we weren't able to pull out any clearly asymmetric channels, which would okay. be a, an intermediate state. It doesn't mean that there weren't any. It could be that the signal-to-noise of our, of our data set was too low. Remember, we had these very high ion concentrations, and so that's definitely something to go back to with a potentially larger data set or with mutations that may interfere with ion binding to see if that way we could break it and generate asymmetric channels. Okay, and then kind of along those lines, Simone asks, how did you deal with any preferential orientation, if you had any? So fortunately, this was a mixture of detergent and lipid, and detergents okay. are often the first tool to break um, preferred orientation, so we didn't have any preferred orientation issues. Okay, and then Dimitri asks um, about, and this I'm not familiar with, did you use um, Scipion? It's S-C-I-P-I-O-N, all capital letters. No, no, we we didn't okay. use that. I have I'm not familiar with the program. I've I've read a little bit about it, but I haven't used it myself. Okay. And then Oxa asks about what are the pitfalls in using cryo or sorry, using electron microscopy period, but I'm assuming that they're asking about cryo EM in this particular technique. It's just like any case. If you don't have mm -hmm. a good biochemically stable sample, you're not going to be able to determine good structural information if you have one where you have too much heterogeneity. In this case, we're able to use the heterogeneity to help us understand how the channel functions. But if you have 50 or 100 different states that are all present at any one time, then you're going to have a real hard time sorting those out. Okay. The other issue is there's a size limitation. If you go below, it, it used to be 200 kilodaltons. It's now more like 80 or 100 kilodaltons. You won't be able to get any useful information out of the uh, images. Okay. And then um, Rayanne asks, how did you decide how many 3D classes to generate and how many particles do you usually have in one particular 3D class? So as I mentioned, we tried between 20 and uh, four classes and they all gave us pretty reproducible results. So we chose 10 um, empirically and worked pretty quickly. We Each one would take about 12 hours to do a classification, so I could set two up a day. Mm -hmm. um, more, than, more classes wow. took significantly longer, and so to get all five done, it took about a week of running through it. And then with the asymmetric refinements, it took even longer. So it was a mix of computational time plus trying to get everything done in a reasonable way. Okay, and then um, Rishi Kesh asks, how did you validate your models? So um, the, do you use a tilt series approach? 
No, in this case, we didn't use a tilt series approach. We knew based on the selectivity filter in the poor domain, based, it's very similar to the uh, structure of other potassium channels. And the gating ring is similar to those of related channels. So there were quite a few features that even at moderate resolution looked very correct. And that was our initial way to validate. And then for building the models, we validated with a variety of uh, crystallographic tools. Okay. And then um, this Ramad asks about, is having a channel in detergent lipid mix better um, than having it in a nano disk? And is that, is this particular for single particle or is it just in general or is it a personal preference? It depends on how well behaved it is. Sometimes okay. nano disks work extremely well. Mm -hmm. uh, Yifan Chang's group has had great success with TRIP-V1 channels and nanodisks. In our case, we've had a lot of experience with detergents as crystallographers. So we started with detergent. It behaved well. And we wanted to continue that way. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to probably continue to try nanodisks for certain experiments. If you have a channel that's lipid regulated, then doing it in nanodisks would make a lot of sense. Okay. And then I have, it's more of a technical question. It's from... Argov, and they're asking about black dots and their negative stain grids. Um, is there a way to determine if it's carbon contamination or if it's from their stain? Um, they could try uh, getting grids from somewhere else or okay. switching stains. There's there's several different negative stains. There's uranyl formate, uranyl acetate. Um, there's a couple other ones that are less widely used, but trying a few different stains, either from different vendors or from other labs, might be a way to test if it's a stain contamination. Okay, and it looks like we just have one final question, and that's about the um, data processing of this. So how does this particular technique compare with other structural biology techniques as far as how easy it is to, diff or to process the data or to do data processing? Um, it's, it's different. So I don't have any experience in NMR, so I can't really speak to that, but with crystallography, and this is also the way it's going. Crystallography, you can do almost all your data processing on a laptop, on a on the train mm -hmm. coming back from the synchrotron or on the airplane coming back from the synchrotron. That's become so advanced and so miniaturized that you can do it very rapidly. With cryo-EM, there's still a lot more user input. We haven't optimized all the techniques. The software designers have done an amazing job. And every two weeks, it seems there's a new program that's better than everything that was before. So more than it being time-consuming, you just have to keep up on the literature because it's the field is evolving so rapidly that something that may have been hard a week ago may be very straightforward because someone wrote a program that can do exactly that. And that makes it a lot of fun to be working in the field right now. Amazing. That sounds great. Well, that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thank you again, Richard, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, FEI, which is part of Thermo Fisher. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you for later this year. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at FEI and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars.
finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.